I'm J.R. Woodward. Welcome to our social landscape. Not too long ago, my friend Rob Coltman and I were enjoying a beer after a Friday morning swim workout, and he asked me a question I had contemplated for quite some time. He wanted to know my thoughts on how our current political world became so divisive, antagonistic, hate-filled. Even though I'd thought about it for a while, I didn't really have a ready answer, so I started reaching out to others to hear their opinions, which leads me to my conversation with Claire Bond Potter. Claire is currently a professor of history at the New School for Social Research in New York City after spending 20 years at Wesleyan University. A graduate of Yale and New York University, her research focuses on the history of the interaction between media and politics. In addition to writing for academic audiences, she's gradually moved towards writing for a larger public. Starting in 2006, she had a blog called The Tenured Radical, hosted at the Chronicle of Higher Education. And in a way, her efforts are similar to my attempts at public sociology with this blog. Her most recent book is Political Junkies, From Talk Radio to Twitter, How Alternative Media Hooked Us on Politics and Broke Our Democracy. And she currently writes a Substack newsletter of the same name. Well, the shortened version, Political Junkie. And this work is the main reason I reached out to her. Over the course of an hour or so, we chatted via Zoom about whether we are truly in a unique political historical moment, and if so, how we got into this mess and a potential roadmap for getting out of it. Oh, and she's also a country music fan, hence the background music for this episode. Loyal listeners will know that I don't play much country on this podcast, but ever the gracious host. He'll find out when I pull the trigger. Claire Bond Potter. Uh, welcome. Thanks for having me. Sure. So could you maybe uh, mind walking me through your background, like your bio, like what pushed you into history, into being a professor, and then also the particular research agenda you chose to follow? Sure. Um, well, for one thing, I did not go to graduate school in history to become a historian. I went into graduate school in history because I wanted to be a writer. And in the process, and this is actually something that's important for young people to know, in the process of a long doctoral program, you change. And one of the things I found I was really good at was archival research and teaching, which are two of the legs of, you know, what we're supposed to be doing as historians. And so by the time I finished my dissertation, I decided to give the whole business of being a college professor a shot. Um, I actually enjoyed teaching enormously. It was a great pleasure to me. And so for many, many years, I was content to be an academic, sort of give up my dream of writing for a broader audience. And then after 9-11, sometime after 9-11, when blogging became a thing and social media became a thing, I got kind of curious about it and started a blog in 2006 called Tenured Radical. And once I started writing Tenured Radical, it got kind of popular. And it was when the blog world was still kind of small. You could sort of know almost everybody who was an academic who was writing a blog. And we were very popular at conferences and and so on. But the more I wrote that, the more I started getting attention from a media world that was being changed by blogging. And so the New York Times called me one day and asked me to write something. The Chronicle of Higher Education moved my blog onto their platform, and I started writing feature articles for them and for Inside Higher Ed. And so my original dream of writing for a general audience really sort of not only was revived, but I kind of had a leg up on a lot of other academics because I had been writing for a general audience for a long time. Mm -hmm. And one of the themes of Tenured Radical actually was trying to explain academic life to other people. (laughs) And as it turned out, um, one of those groups that wanted to be explained to was graduate students. Um, And in particular, I had a big following of graduate students who were first-generation college, 
um, who had not come from families where they got a lot of direction about how you were supposed to do this thing, which was very sort of upper middle class in many ways. And so I developed this following of people who started writing me and saying, you know, thank you for that article you did on what to wear to history conventions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or thank you for that article you did on giving a job talk because mm -hmm. nobody's ever explained these things to me. And so that sort of got me going. And I began to shift really into a register of scholarly writing that is for a general audience. Um, so you can really sh see that shift in my work around 2012, which is when I went to the new school, mm -hmm. when Renee Romano and I did a book called Doing Recent History. Right, right. Um, and then uh, Renee and I also did a second book about Hamilton, the musical. Right. Um, yeah. And collection there. I've seen that. Yep. Yeah. And then my most recent book, which came out last summer, in the summer of 2020, was Political Junkies. And that really was my first single authored book that was for a general audience. And that's about how alternative media changed politics. Um, and that was a lot of fun to write because on the one hand, I'm a political historian so and a media historian. So that's what I was doing. On the other hand, I was writing about a change in our social world that I'd actually been part of. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I was writing as an insider outsider about things like the Drudge Report um, mm -hmm. and how blogging um, changed politics in 2004 and how Obama used Facebook in 2008. Yeah. Um, so political junkies um, really became the, the point of no return for me. Um, I really become a person who writes almost exclusively for a, an intelligent general audience that's, that's eager for ideas. Um, I'm not particularly interested in doing academic writing anymore, even though I admire people who do. Sure. Um, it's too slow for me. Um, and I'm not interested in really impressing, you know, half a dozen people when I could reach hundreds of thousands of people on an urgent topic um, yeah. like yeah. guns or um, abortion or um, disinformation yeah. uh, or something like that. So now, it, you know, I, I no longer write tenured radical, but I write a substack stack um, yeah. that I named after my book called, called political junkie. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where I'm doing my work when I'm not writing books. Right. Yeah. I, can, I think I came to you through the Chronicle, I think is when I first started to, mm -hmm. to read. Yeah. You were uniquely situated and, you know, it, with that background to, to kind of hit the ground running, you know, with that. So really I was unbelievably mm -hmm. lucky, Jr. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the way the way social media and technology works, you know, it, it moves incredibly fast now and yeah. and it moves faster now than it did back then. You know, mm -hmm. but that particular at what I would call the golden age of blogging, which was mm -hmm. like 2006 yeah. to 2009. It's really done um, for all kinds of reasons, um, not not bad reasons, but but you really you know you see it with podcasting now. You know, yeah, right. you, it's very hard to do a podcast on your own and really have it gain traction sure. nowadays. Yeah. Whereas mm -hmm. you know, four or five years ago, it wasn't. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So so yeah, so it does change quickly. I, I hadn't thought about it quite that way, but yeah, it is a, a quick turnover. Yep. What about the um, the new school? Can you tell me a little bit about the new school? Oh, the new school is wonderful. Yeah. Um, so I taught at Wesleyan University for 20 years, um, which is a wonderful place to teach, wonderful students, um, but, you know, very conventional as elite institutions are conventional. Um, what's great about the new school is you can do anything you want. I mean, literally, you can do <laughs> anything you want. And there good. you are in the middle of New York City, You've got all these amazing students. It's a very international student body. So we have students from all over the world. Um, and we also have students from all over New York. And I actually began my work at the new school in the uh, bachelor's program, which is an, is an adult education program where people come back to get their BA as grownups. Um, a lot, a shockingly large number of people are derailed. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. often women because they got pregnant when they were in their junior year or something and sure, got sure. married and became moms. But, you know, people with big careers 
who all of a sudden wake up one day and say, you know, I really want to finish that BA. Right. Um, So that was really fun teaching because the students bring so much of themselves into the classroom. Um, Now I teach at NSSR, which is the original new school. Um, Well, the the graduate division, the original graduate division of the new school. And as I said, it's very international. Um, What what makes the new school really fun for me, and partly it's because I came to it as a fully formed person, is if you have an idea, you can just do it. You know, you you go in and say, hey, I've got this great idea. And they're like, "Okay, here's a little chunk of money. Um, Let's see if you can make it happen. And by the way, we'd like you to include your students in it. So even better. Yeah. So right now I'm co-executive editor of Public Seminar, mm-hmm. um, which was founded by a sociologist, Jeff Goldfarb. Mm-hmm. Um, and we produce a weekly web newspaper um, with the help of graduate students. Um, and it's it's really fun to work with them because a lot of these young people are also people who are getting PhDs, but they too want to write for a general audience. So mm-hmm. particularly in this day and age, as you know, with the, with the job market being as dicey as it is, mm-hmm. um, part of our goal at Public Seminar is to um, teach people who have PhDs that they actually have lots of other options um, and and that these are useful options and good options and that you can actually help people in the world um, by being a writer. Right. Right. That's great. It would be hard for me to push somebody into trying to be a professor like in Florida with what's, you know, these kind of attacks on higher education and specifically on sociology and some of the, you know, the more liberal topics that are coming after us. Like, man, it's, I'm glad I'm here and where I am and, you know, have gone through that, but I would, I would have to be hard. I'd have to really think about it before I would recommend it to somebody young, just coming out of school and going to grad school. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, what's happening in Florida is awful. What's happening in Texas is awful. Um, I, you know, I would also say, I think it's going to pass. I mean, we've had waves of these things in the past. Um, there was a wave of it in 1919, you know, when, um, You know, that's when the new school was founded because there were all these people at Columbia who were against World War One and they were getting all kinds of shit for it. And they said, all right, we're going to go. We're going to found an institution where there actually is freedom of thought. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, another big wave of this after World War Two during the Red Scare in which faculty were being attacked. So so I think this is cyclical. um, And. I would say what I would say to young people is don't go into being a college professor thinking that you have no other options, you know, because where I see people becoming really unhappy and kind of desperate is believing that they can't do anything else, you know, Mm -hmm. so that if their career goes off the rails, um, they're doomed. Um, and, and that's not true. Um, it's something they teach us in graduate school that, you know, if you're not completely and totally dedicated to the discipline that you're in, you will fail. Um, (laughs) but in fact, you know, particularly in a discipline like sociology or anthropology or something, there's lots of things you can do. So, you know, what I would say to young people is try, if this is your dream, try, but know that you can have other dreams and that would be okay too. Yeah. It's not the end of the world. There's other things. You're right. And those are interesting. Well, I I wanted to talk to you. um, I wanted to talk to you in an attempt to make sense of our current political landscape, kind of broadly speaking here. So it probably, I started thinking about this. I don't know exactly when, but before the 2020 election, I interviewed people, just random people from all over about the coming election. and, And, you know, the divisiveness already was really pretty clear. And yeah. of course, it's been intensified over the years, the Trump presidency, the January 6th you know, uprising in the current debacle over Biden's Build Back Better agenda. And I've had a few conversations with with friends and with students that essentially start like, you know, what the hell's going on, you know, in America? The level of anger and animosity seems unprecedented, um, but you know, we've always had some disagreements, of course, but right now it just seems heavier. And I don't really have a quick and easy answer right. when, when people say that to me. So I'm trying to gain an understanding. And that led me to you and particularly the, the recent book, Political Junkies. Um, sure. So I guess, you know, was there a time in the past where there, it wasn't a shit show or is that just mythologizing the past, you know, so if we take the first part of my inquiry, do you think this is truly, you know, a unique time, like we're living through an unique 
unique amount of social unrest and anger. I mean, there was divisiveness during the Civil War and, you know, during the Civil Rights Movement. So are these things cyclical or do you think what's happening right now is there's a uniqueness to it? Well, you know, it's interesting. You should talk about the Civil Rights Movement. I'm doing a lot of deep reading about Freedom Summer right now because of a a biography I'm writing of Susan Brown Miller, and, and she went to Freedom Summer, and it was sort of crucial to her becoming a feminist. And um, reading about what was going on in Mississippi in July of 1964 is enough to set your hair on fire. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we, we think things are bad now. Yeah. They don't hold a candle to what was going on in Mississippi, even before 1964. I mean, yeah. you know, people Definitely. just driving by people, you know, white people driving by black people's houses and shooting shotguns in the windows. And I mean, just horrifying stuff. Um police arresting people for no reason and then beating the crap out of them and in jail. And so, so I wouldn't say it is worse than it has ever been. What, what I would say is that a number of things have changed and we haven't kept up with them well. And a couple of these things are um, the ways in which social media can get to so many people so accurately So it was always true that we had many different kinds of alternative media that people chose to to receive or not receive. Um, Talk radio, there were, um, you know, broadcasting, uh, conservative broadcasting. People used to mail videotapes around the country, um, you know, before before we had cable. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Tons of publications, Um, human events, um, for example, is a conservative publication that was probably more formative to Ronald Reagan than anything else in his life. You know, there's a certain moment in which Ronald Reagan is beginning to become conservative. He's sort of disillusioned with the New Deal. He's disillusioned with Hollywood and it's been taken over by communists and so on. (laughs) And William F. Buckley calls him and says, you know, I hear you're interested in a political career. And if you are, you really have to read. (laughs) And so he starts sending him human events and calls him every week and says, okay, so you got human events. What did you learn this week? Right. And so human events is a very, very right wing publication. And, and so, so people could get that stuff and, you know, what they were getting was no less incendiary and no more true than what they're getting over the internet now. Okay. I would say, however, that the difference is that we have been taught as media consumers to attach our feelings to ideas so closely. So like today, I don't know if you listened to the the Supreme Court hearing on the Mississippi abortion law. Um, Well, it was very interesting. And and I I love listening to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm sort of watching people freak out all over the place. Um, And, you know, the vast majority of my people are liberals, they're Mm pro-abortion and so on. And they're all saying we're doomed. It's all over, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm kind of like, did we listen to the same Supreme Court hearing? Mm -hmm. And the only way I can account for that difference is that even really smart, really well-educated people, even journalists um, are so um, quick to attach their worst fears to the news. And, and I think we've been taught to do that, you know, by, by, you know, publications across the political spectrum, um, but also by political consultants. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a kind of long-term intensification of what political consultants have done in the media to whip up distress and dissatisfaction. You know, and, and you see some of that in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, but where it really starts to accelerate is in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And I would pinpoint um, Pat Buchanan's culture war speech yeah. um, at, the, at the Republican convention, where he's basically saying, you know, I, I want all my delegates to go to George W. Bush or George George H. W. Bush, H-W. who who he hated, <laughs> um, and then he delivers this barn burner speech, you know, about how the entire party has to take up arms against homosexuals, against feminists, you know, mm-hmm. all of these people. So, so and and it's very effective. It's extremely effective, and and all kinds of political consultants see that. And they start sort of 
morphing, there had always been dirty tricks and always this thing, which I, you know, I don't know whether your, your listeners will object to this. It's called in the, in the business rat fucking, um, in which you, you spread some, some entirely false information out there. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, and get people all whipped up about it. So there'd always been some of that. But what we begin to see in the 1990s is political consultants using the internet to really move those stories and that misinformation faster through the through political culture. And so I think over the course of the last three decades, we have learned to become hysterical. We have learned to become angry. Um, and it's only, you know, it takes a kind of restraint to not lash out at people. Um, you know, particularly since now we're all on Twitter and Facebook and Twitter and Facebook reward lashing out on people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't I don't do Facebook very much anymore um, for a variety of reasons. But every once in a while I dip into it and there are certain threads from certain people that I look at. And these are people with whom more or less I'm politically sympathetic. And I just think these people are crackers. They're, compl- <laughs> <All right. laughs> you know, and it's like, and, and there's something that's happened with that where, and I think it's true on the left and the right, where people think as long as your cause is good, you can say anything you want about anybody. Hmm. And that's, that's a big part of the problem is, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've really sort of poisoned um, the public square. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to work actively to unpoison it. So, yeah. So that makes sense. If I was going to ask, you know, if we are at this, what brought us here, but it sounds like just the, if, if you, what you're saying about the technology, the internet being useful, like the ideas have been around, but they just didn't reach as many people and didn't reach them as That's quickly. Right. And then with technology caught up or surpassed. Right. Well, and and we can all broadcast ourselves, right? I mean, you know, we've, you know, many of us, I'm 60, 63, you know, so I grew up listening to radio, watching television, you know, there were a limited number of channels, but I watched other people broadcasting. When social media showed up, I could broadcast myself. Mm -hmm. And so there are all kinds of people (laughs) who can't seem to have a thought or a feeling without putting it on Twitter. You know, it's like all of those folks who who post, I don't know who needs to hear this, but, and then it's some really snarky thing that they have to say. Um, So it's no wonder (laughs) that we are divided as a people because you stumble across these things and your first thing is to say, oh my God, I'm so offended. I hate that person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you really have to take some time to back off and say, wait, I don't know that person. And I don't have to respond to this. In fact, I don't even have to read it if I don't want to, because it doesn't matter what this person thinks. You know, it matters what Chris Sununu in New Hampshire thinks. It matters what Greg Abbott thinks. It matters what Joe Biden thinks doesn't matter what, you know, some assistant professor in Oklahoma thinks. So, you know, I think it's important for all of us to think each of us individually, what am I willing to do to lower the temperature, to create a political world where it's possible for people to speak to each other and possibly even agree about something. I mean, and that's what my post was about today on, on political junkie, my newsletter. It was about the, the school shooting in Michigan, Michigan. which mm-hmm. is a horrible tragedy, one in a long string of horrible tragedies. Right. And so one of the things I thought about is, you know, okay, so we've got all of these people who are going to send thoughts and prayers which, you know, everyone on the left will mock them for. We've got all of these people who will say, we need to pass laws so this can never happen again. You know, we're always saying that things should never happen again. When in fact, they happen, these same things happen all the time. And so one of the things I was thinking of is like, okay, what would it mean for my friends on the left to give it up that we're not just going to evaporate every gun in the United States, Mm -hmm. Right. And in fact, you know, there are more guns in the United States than there are people, right? Mm-hmm. So, so this is not, this is not a cat you can put back in the bag. Right. And so I sort of outlined a few very small steps that could be taken that could make our youth safer. Okay. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like if every parent, you know, this, this kid who bought a gun and went and shot up his school, his father had bought that gun at a Black Friday sale, <laughs> right? Just like last Friday, he right. bought the damn gun. Right. And so what if that father was legally required to keep his handgun in a gun safe? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. That, you know, it's not very much to right. ask, right. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, gun safes nowadays, you know, they have this technology where you can use a thumbprint sure, to open them. Mm-hmm. So people saying, well, I don't want to have to, like, you know, do a combination lock mm-hmm. if there's an intruder in my house. Well, you know what? If you can't put your thumb on the lock and, <laughs> you know, successfully <laughs> remove the gun from the gun safe, you probably shouldn't own one, <laughs> right. you know. Um, you know, but, you know, it's just three things that people could do that would make our youth safer. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's what I'm sort of very focused on now is, you know, I, I, I think I'm very much on the left. Um, I have a lot of friends who are conservatives. And, and it seems to me that that some of us, you know, who identify as left or identify as right, need to start using our heads and saying, what proposals can we put in there? Because actually, all this extremism all it's about is driving political donations. Mm-hmm. And all it's about is electing politicians who will do what their donors want, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I don't right. think most of the people in Congress who say they care about the Second Amendment really care about the constituents owning guns at all. But I think they're willing cynically to put it out there and claim to be for you know complete and utter and total liberty because it drives donors and you know so so i think we have to start thinking about like how do we find areas of compromise that are not going to prevent anyone ever again being killed by handgun but that might actually reduce mortality from weapons that are in the hands of people who shouldn't have them more realistic and tangible step. Yeah, exactly. Like just reduce it. You know, it's, it's an endemic problem. It's not a pandemic. It's an endemic now. (laughs) Right. So that reminds me of uh, just briefly about like Joe Manchin, you know, going against the billionaire tax, right? There's no billionaires in his state, like not a single one. Like, so who are his his constituencies? That's not who he's, you know, he's like you said, the donors, you know, always kind of going for donors. So you kind of, you kind of got, got ahead of me too. Cause the next question you've kind of answered it was, um, you know, if, if this time is different and now we, you know, have talked about why, then how do we get out of it? And you wrote, uh, no, in an interview, you said, uh, find other ways to do media that don't simply capitulate to division. And so mm-hmm. I was going to ask you how you get there, but you've kind of brought that up. Just kind of small steps, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Well, small steps. And then also, um, you know, I, I can't say much about it because I don't know whether it's going to fly. Um, but one of the things I'm toying with is doing a podcast with a friend of mine who's a conservative political consultant, um, who is very much a, a national populist and, you know, was a Trump supporter. Um, and so on. And, and he, he wrote this great book called They're Not Listening. Um, which was about populism and, you know, why populism was so attractive um, to, to people on the right, because they felt so excluded um, from, from decision-making and, and so on. And it's a really good book. Anyway, I, I really like this guy a lot. His name is Ryan Gerdusky and okay. um, he and I have been friends for a while um, and we have a lot of differences, but we're also just really friends. And so one of the things I want to do is I'd love to do a podcast with him um, called okay, I'm listening. Oh, okay. <laughs> in which, <laughs> in which we choose one topic that we disagree about, um, one topic that we agree about, and then the sort of final segment would be um, something we read that week that changed our minds. Um, because I actually think that influencers need to start demonstrating that it's possible to change your mind about something or that it's possible to be empathetic towards someone who you disagree with, or that it's possible to listen to someone and maybe just change your mind a little bit, you know, not, not become like them, but just say, okay, I still think you're wrong, but I understand what you're saying and you have a point. 
Mm-hmm. You Boy, know, seem, we seem so far away from that. I mean, I know. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great though? I know. Wow. And yeah. and I think you know, partly it's because of what you and I do, right? We teach, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you can't go into a classroom and just tell students who disagree with you that they're just wrong and stupid and they need to shut up. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. There's a lot in the news that teachers do that, but most of us don't, don't do that, right? right? Sure. sure. Yeah. Um. And and I think. You might also agree that that some of the best moments in the classroom are when some student actually speaks their mind and are in the minority in the classroom and they're willing to really stand up for themselves. And you as the teacher can kind of get behind them and insist that the, that the class have a conversation about it. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and that can be transformative in a classroom. And I, and I think the kinds of things that you and I just do um, in our professional lives if we took those out into the public square and demonstrated to other people that it's possible, mm-hmm. um, it could, it probably won't change the entire country, but it could be a counterweight to the kinds of extremism that are dominating the public sphere now. That's great. Kind of like you have my notes there in front of you because I was just going to ask you about populism. Um, question yeah. number question number four here. So um, you wrote the divisive populisms that have been resurgent in American politics since 1960, tied to the rise of alternative media. So um, I just was going to ask you what role do you think populism has played in this change we've seen? Because you hear about Trumpism as a form of populism, Pluto populism, progressive populism. Like who uh, controls the, the populism narrative right now? Well, that's a really that's a really good question. Um, I think Trump, on the one hand, um, is controlling the conservative populism narrative, although he's kind of losing his grip on on it because of having been kicked off the major social media platforms. Mm -hmm. Um, And he can't he can't seem to get back involved. So that that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch. But what we've seen is all these mini Trumps Mm -hmm. sort of picking up on his style, people who are real politicians, people who, well, also some that aren't real politicians like Lauren Boebert and and Marjorie Taylor Greene. I I I have no idea what they're even doing in Congress. Like, you know, don't get me started on those two. Well, I mean, it's not even enough money to, to like, well, I mean, I guess there's money in the end when you become a political consultant and so on, but, um, but, but there are all these sort of mini Trumps out there who are, you know, sort of fueling it. And I think, you know, people like Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis are, are really smart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay? they're, they're and that's, problem. that's actually why they're so dangerous in mm-hmm. my view. So they know how to keep the populism thing going um, and they know how to steer it in the directions they, they want to steer it. I think the populism that's prevalent on the left, I think there's some shifts there too, because really it was Bernie Sanders um, who was in charge of that. And it, and it's a populism that sort of initially arose, I think, in the Howard Dean campaign okay. um, yep. back yep. in 2004. Um, but Sanders was really able to take hold of it and, and do a lot with it, I think. The problem with populism, from my perspective, um, and Sanders is kind of an exception to this, but his many of his followers are not, um, is that populism is fundamentally anti-government in all of its forms. Hmm. Populism argues literally that power needs to be devolve from, from government and be returned to the people. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's attractive in some small ways, you know, like there's this thing they do in New York city called community budgeting, where your district will get, you know, there's a million dollars that is given to your district and the community decides, you know, do you want, six new playgrounds or should we replace all the bathrooms in the public schools? Okay. Mm-hmm. And you have a debate about that. And that's actually really interesting, right? Sure. So there are aspects of po- populism that can in fact bind people together. But the problem is because it's anti-political party and anti um, and anti-government, 
populism is always veering into the realm of being utterly and completely undisciplined. And it's very, very fragile as mm-hmm. politics, okay. right? So for all of the ways in which political parties can be too stodgy, they can be corrupt, they can, you know, we, we can be cynical about them for all kinds of ways. But what they rely on is discipline. And, you know, and I think, you know, one of the effects we've seen of populism on the Republican Party is the kind of discipline that is being used right now is very odd. You know, it's like this insistence that everyone be in the lockstep. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. at the same time, you've got the Looney Tunes like Marjorie mm-hmm. Taylor Greene. Right. Um, or Lauren Bobert doing whatever they want, like right. breaking every single rule in the book, right? right. Yeah. And so, so that makes it difficult for the Republican Party to, to do anything, you know, and maybe they actually decided as a group that they wanted to be a party that doesn't do anything. <laughs> um, but it seems to me that the principal danger of electing Republicans to Congress and it, to the White House right now is that the entire country will go into stasis again. You know, that there, there are no new ideas. There is nothing that gets sure. done. There is, you know, and, and of course the fact is, you know, you can't just have a government that doesn't spend money. You can't have a government sure. that doesn't tax people. Right? Right, right. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, these yeah. are like the basic functions of government. And so, so the problem with populists to my mind is that they want things but they don't know how to make them happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think there's some of that with the Democrats as well. Like they don't seem to have, you know, a a colleague of mine, David Jaffe, he always shares these letters and emails he gets from the democratic party asking for money because we've got to do something, but it's never really anything that they articulate is other than stopping the Republicans, but you know, there's not really a a really strong platform that way either. The both, both kind of just, floating around right. what right. about um looking outside the u.s um nancy fraser who i believe is a colleague of yours yes uh, yeah um in an article titled from progressive neoliberalism to trump and beyond she writes um it is if masses of people throughout the world had stopped believing in the reigning common sense that underpinned political domination for the last several decades it's as if they'd lost confidence in the bona fides of the elites and were searching for new ideologies Given the scale of the breakdown, it's unlikely that this is a coincidence. Let us assume that we face a global political crisis. So what say you? Well, I think Nancy's right. Um, But I think in different places, it comes from different sources. Um, So that I think, for example, if you look at Brazil, um, Brazil's history of corruption is legendary. Sure. Um, sure. (laughs) Sure. And, you know, a lot of that corruption came from... Um, you know, United States domination of Brazil. Um, I think if you look at Eastern European countries, um, I spent a lot of time in Poland um, about three years ago, which I loved. If Mm. you ever want to go travel somewhere and meet some of the loveliest people in the world, go to Poland. Okay. Um, But, you know, one of the things that, that I think was overestimated in Eastern Europe was that the collapse of communism would actually produce democracy? Mm. Um, right. I don't. I don't think um, democracy is something that just happens. I don't think you know. And it's clear in the in the former Soviet Union, those communists didn't go away. Sure. You know, sure. uh, they were just supposed to say, you know, one day, oh, it looks like communism is over. I guess I'm I'll participate home. in democracy now. <laughs> you know, no, they they robbed their countries blind. Um, they they took all this cash and bought property in London and Miami yeah, and New York City yeah. and mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So, you know, I don't actually think Eastern Europe ever had stable democracy in the first place. I think what is a little more troubling to all of us is to see countries like France and England mm-hmm. <laughs> and the United States, um, where there is a long tradition of democracy, to suddenly see that become so fragile. Um, and I think there are there are different different sources of all of this. Um, and let me just say, I think there's one thing that the populists get right, the national populists, which is global cap- capital 
has a great deal to do with it. I think the fact that the wealthiest people in the world have no need to respect or care about any nation at all. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the fact that, for example, the Apple Corporation pays no income tax amazing. at all. Amazing. Enough. At all. And mm-hmm. and so, you know, part, what that does is it means they have no investment in in the the stability of any country, sure. um, except China, which is where they get all the minerals that they need to to make their devices. Yeah. Um so, or make our devices. I don't know yeah. what you're on, but I'm on right. an Apple. Yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, so, so I think, I think Nancy's right about that. And I think, and if, if I follow, because, you know, I, I know how Nancy's mind works, you know, partly what needs to happen is that governments need to take power back from business, the power oh. that they more or less handed over willingly Mm-hmm. Um, across the board politically in the 1990s, you know, it was like, oh yes, corporations will do all these great things because it's in their best interest to to be in democracies. Well, guess what? It's not. Right. So I think that is the challenge: is how to wrest control. And of course, to come back to our original topic, which is the media, you know, the United States is a great example of this. The FCC is completely toothless now. Right. You know, right. the FCC. We don't need to talk about like what kind of legislation do we need to control Facebook. We have an agency and it's called the FCC. And (laughs) they, in fact, could assert authority over Facebook if the government allowed them to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think those are the kinds of demands as Mm -hmm. as citizens. You know, we need to insist on strong government. We need to insist on on regulation. We need to insist on anti-monopoly. Um, and, and these are the things that I think will bring our, our politics, um, back to where we want them to be. That dovetails nicely with an article you wrote recently in the New York times, um, uh, discussing how Ronald Reagan, um, and that, that era, really that time ushered in a kind of callousness that, and we still see it in our debates today. Uh, and you wrote, how did we get to a point? that doing less for Americans is a virtue and comprehensive social welfare is a privilege. And you trace yeah. it back to January 20, 1981 with, with Reagan, but I, I would guess the seeds of it have long been, you know, have long been sown, but could you talk about that? And is there overlap with um, that line of research and thinking with the media work that you do or do, did they kind of spawn it or is it really kind of separate, but looking at sure. the larger issue? I mean, I think of myself as a historian of political media and it, you know, really, after World War II, politics and the media became intertwined. And that, that process really begins back in the 1930s, when, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt used the radio and used newsreels to promote a political program, which was the New Deal, um, and became this sort of as much a media figure as he was a president. Um, that's actually what my first book was about. And so... Um, so I think it was coming, but, you know, really after World War II, we sort of get this, this new breed of people who become specialists in political media and, you know, helping politicians market themselves, um, you know, and, and where my interest in someone like Ronald Reagan comes from is that Ronald Reagan was a master storyteller and he was a persuasive storyteller. He was um, very well-spoken. Often people thought that he didn't have much up in his head. You know, it's hard to know whether that's true or not because he was such an opaque guy. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, when he told stories about the so-called welfare queens, that was a way of mobilizing racism and mobilizing misogyny against government, you know, of saying saying to the country, you know, we're wasting all this money on black women, right. you know, and not only that, but they're criminals. Right. And so, so in a stroke, what he, what he did is 
throw liberals onto their heels. I mean, in fact, when Reagan was saying those words, the majority of people on welfare were white women. Of course. Yeah, sure. So a lot more white <laughs> the, poor people than any other group. That's right. The vast majority of people on welfare were only on welfare for fewer than five years. You mm -hmm. know, so a lot of women were using welfare to go back to college mm -hmm. and get college degrees so that they could get good jobs. And so what, what Ronald Reagan triggers with that story is a belief among Americans that welfare is actually making people poor, mm -hmm. is actually hurting people, right? And so this is, and the reason I, I talked about this in, this in this article is that Joe Manchin, who was one of the two holdouts in the Democratic Party, still is, mm -hmm. of, of getting major social legislation passed, is Manchin had the same line. He was saying, you know, I don't want America to become an entitlement society. You know, if we have these programs, Americans will all become criminals. No one will work. No, <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. It, right. And that's not yeah. the story. That is not the story of welfare. And now it is true that welfare has never been good enough. Mm -hmm. It is true that welfare has always been hard to access, mm -hmm. um, which, by the way, who has solved this problem? The Mormon church. Um, the, um, I read this great story in the Deseret News the other day about how Salt Lake City has something they call Welfare Square, where you can come, you can take the bus and come there and go to an office for every single program you're eligible for. And they're right next door to each other. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. The Mormon church is really good at this stuff. Yeah. Um, and they're really good at solving social problems, which is why perhaps Mitt Romney should be president. I don't know. But um, <laughs> careful what you but, <laughs> I know. Um, but it, it is it is not true that welfare has harmed people. It is true that welfare has helped people and it has helped people. You know, I know women with PhDs who were single teenage mothers mm -hmm. who used welfare to go back to school and then went to doctoral programs and then became college professors, right? Yeah. So, so welfare can be an upward mobility program. But when you have someone like the president saying, no, welfare is a, is a criminal operation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the government is paying for it, you're paying for it, all right, all right. you know, when, when, when that happens, um, then, then actually policy is being driven by ideology, but it's, it's also being driven by false narratives um, mm -hmm. about, about Americans. Sure. Um, yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? That be people be more upset about the money that we're throwing at these welfare Queens compared to like Apple, not paying taxes, like how much money are, are not in the right. coffers. Because Apple that, not paying you know, taxes or, you know, you know, no one's upset about that, you know, and that's well, so much more than Senate, what we're doing for welfare. Yeah. Yeah. The entire Senate signed off on a military um, spending bill this year, a defense appropriation act that was almost $800 million. Right. So, you know, and they do that every year, every, yeah, every year, <laughs> everybody yep. votes for it, yep. you know, Okay, so so one of the things that's important about that is, you know, say what you like about, you know, taxpayer dollars going to death dealing machines and death dealing machines that are being just given away to other countries and so on and so forth. But it is also the case that the military has one of the most functional welfare systems in the world, mm -hmm. the American military, you know, mm -hmm. they've got paid family leave, yeah. they've got 24 hour daycare. Their daycare is run by people who have graduated from college and who are paid professional salaries. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. you name it, you know, they've got wraparound medical care. Yeah. And so on. So actually, we have a model in the United States of how this works. And it works well for the military. Right. Um, but the idea of extending that to all Americans, like, oh, my God, no, that's a waste of money. Right. And it's more it's more efficient. It's less wasteful. Like, for right. example, with the healthcare, even though the VA healthcare might not be great, it's still more efficient. And they just lose less money Absolutely. than we do with the private sector. So we would Absolutely. actually make money by doing Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we've got over a million women who have not gone back to work because they can't find childcare. Right. Right. Childcare is expensive as hell. I know. It's expensive as hell, but they just can't even find it, uh -huh. right? They <laughs> can't find a place for it. You know, it's it's one of the premium things. If you live in a place like New York or San Francisco oh, or LA, yeah. it's like being able to just find a place for your kid 
yeah. is is worth your life, much wow. less paying for it. So, wow. so you know, it, it would be good for this country economically. I mean, we've got a shortage of workers now. Sure, sure. Yeah. You know? So anyway. All right. Yep. All right. Lightning round, because I know you got I'm taking up a lot of your okay. time. It's a lot more than I asked you for. Uh, so <laughs> I appreciate you sticking with me. Um, so like you, I've written a couple things about transgender athletes, critical race theory. Yep. I did a, a, a series a couple months ago on some... I, I don't know. I called it like fucked up Florida legislation or something like that. Um, Cause we DeSantis death, death Santis, they call him here signed into uh, legislation, uh, an anti-trans athlete bill can't teach, can't talk about critical race theory. And any, we didn't do, our, do that anyways in our public schools, but you mm-hmm. can't officially do it. And uh, liberal indoctrination in colleges, they're going to survey students now to see if they think they're getting, you know, having open-minded professors and stuff like this, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. So, uh, and when I'm reading some of your stuff about it, do you think um, these kind of bills are these kind of cultural war bills? Are they aimed at trying to get people to come out for the midterm elections or are they, because they're, they're kind of making up a problem that's not there, um, but, but it rallies the base. Is that, is that kind of the motivation behind it? I think it's absolutely the motivation. And I think it also distracts people from the real things that need to be done. I mean, you know, um, one of the things that Florida schools need, I've got family in Florida, so I I sort of keep up with this, but Florida schools need money, right? right? And they don't get money because, you know, Florida won't tax people. Right. Um, And so, so, you know, the schools in Florida, I'm sure some of them are good and some of them are bad, but their main problem is not transgender athletes, right? right? Um, Similarly, you know, the the problem in in universities in Florida, it's not liberal professors, it's that they don't have enough professors. Um, And that, you know, half to 60% of their courses are being taught by adjuncts, um, who are underpaid and probably on food stamps. Um, So so there are a whole range of things that politicians would have to talk about if they were not setting the agenda with these inflammatory items. And, you know, nobody says, you know, well, what, what about a transgender girl on your softball team? What they say is, how would you like to have a boy with a penis in a locker room with your, exactly, <laughs> your exactly. softball playing child? Sure. You know? yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, well, no, I wouldn't like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know? oh, I'm with you. I'm voting for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's totally, right. Totally so, so again, it's like you choose these things that, that are going to play on people's ignorance, that are going to play on people's preconceived prejudices. Um, you know, one of the things I don't know whether you've noticed this or not is that, by and large, politicians don't go after gay and lesbian people anymore. Hmm. <laughs> you know, after and it's the, it's a relief. You know, it's Supreme kind of relaxing. Court, after the well, Supreme Court, after the Supreme think, Court, the yes, yeah, but it's also true that younger generations of conservative and Christian youth are very pro LGBT. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in, in part because they all have friends who yeah, are openly yeah. LGBT, <laughs> sure, sure. Um, you know, so, so those kids have grown up in a world in which it seems unfair to them yeah. to be prejudiced against LGBT people. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think the, the temperature on that has shifted and, you know, LGBT people can no longer be portrayed as, you know, uniformly deviant and weird and so on because you know we're all getting married and having children and buying houses and Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth so so really i think and i think that was always um a kind of diversion so the diversion has shifted shifted. to to some a a kind of person that most people think they don't know or most people don't believe they have in their family even though they may very well have someone like that in their family they might not believe it even exists that's it, right. And and then of course it's exists. it's portrayed in a way that is is so obscene and right. cruel and and comic right. um that that you can sort of get people to accept it as common sense. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I mean one of the things that's interesting is that um people who transition to masculinity often find that uniformly actually that they're treated much better. 
right. you know, and, yep. and are often in all these environments, like, you know, very conservative law firms or tech bro firms or something like that, where you would imagine that they would be humiliated or, or teased or something like that. And they're like, no, it's like all these guys get it that I'm a guy and, yeah. and they, they treat me better than I was ever treated before. And they can play sports that uh, we don't keep right. them out of sports, right? That's you know, like we don't keep them out of men's sports. We only that's keep right. uh, that's women right. out of women's sports. <laughs> we right. got it made. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Last one. So uh, the difficult question here, but kind of the, you know, the, the final one about if you could choose one thing kind of to make uh, positive, progressive social change. Um, when I always ask this question to people, I always kind of think I would, I wish we could change the, the power structure to get rid of this duopoly. I, I really don't like mm-hmm. the two-party system. Something in your book, I think you said, people realize that something is broken and the party system itself is not going to survive unless it changes. And I say, good, get rid of the party system. I don't like mm-hmm. it anyways. So that would be mm-hmm. how I answer it. Can we open it up to more to more voices and more parties? But what about you? If you had a magic button you could press, to, you know, and, and do you see your role as an author, as a professor, as a writer working towards that goal? Oh, that's, that's a really good question. I guess, I guess what I would say is I would make all education free. Okay. K through whatever. Yeah. K through whatever. whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, or at least have as, as they say in healthcare, a public option, all public institutions should be free. Um, And that doesn't mean that, you know, we pay for everything. Um, But, but primarily tuition should, should be free. Um, I think both the withholding education from the poor or that when poor people get an education, the fact that they come out indebted mm-hmm. to the tune of sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars sure. um, that they can never pay back. Right. Um, it's bad for the economy, it's bad for society. Um, but I also think it has put a kind of pressure on the middle class that is in the end reactionary. It has made the middle class cynical about government. Um, When you have families that are, you know, parents who are still paying off their own student loans and signing off on student loans for the kids and and so on. I think think, um, educational debt has driven a kind of narrowness in what people are allowed to dream for nowadays. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not saying everybody should go to college. You know, I think yeah, we should yeah. have free community college where people become LPNs. We should train people to be electricians. We should train people to be plumbers. I think all of that should be free. And it, it would, in fact, be good for our economy. Right. You know, right now we are suffering from a real deficit of trained workers in every single sphere of economic activity. And we've got a bunch of kids coming up saying, you know, why should I go to college if it just means taking a job that I don't want so that I can pay loans back? Pay back loans, right? yeah. mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, yep. I, I think public education is one of the great incubators of democracy. And I would actually like to see a lot of people who are going to private institutions where actually sometimes a private institution is cheaper because they can offer you more financial aid, right? Right. right? Um, I would like to see more people driven into public institutions, and I would like to see more students actually having to grapple with people who are different from them, Mm -hmm. right? Because Mm -hmm. I think, you know, one of the big sorts, you know, forget the internet, which is a big one. One of the big sorts has always been in education. Where did you go to school? Right. Where do you want to go to school? What school has people like me in it? Right. Mm-hmm. And and I think a diversity of opinions, of backgrounds, of ethnicities in public institutions that are attractive to everyone because they're free would be one of the best things we could do for this country. Well, yeah, that's a great idea. Supreme Court, that's a, that's why they support have supported affirmative action for so long. Like it's it benefits everybody to have a diverse classroom setting. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. listening to an interview with Claire Bond Potter on our social landscape and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, please take a minute to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. I thank Claire for such an engaging chat. 
I haven't completely figured out the answer to my friend Rob's question, but speaking with Claire gets me one giant step closer, and I'm grateful for her time. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the interview, and I'll remind you that one of the purposes of this blog is to engage in public sociology. For me, the goal is to engage academic and non-academic audiences in critical discussions of social issues that are typically confined to the academic world. But it doesn't work if I'm the only one talking. So please feel free to sign up for the blog and become a member, which simply entails creating a username and password, Then you can comment after each post. At the very least, please feel free to send me an email, and I'll be sure to respond. I'll post a link to Claire's work on my page as well as the song list, and if you're feeling so inclined, you can push the yellow donate button on the homepage. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at jr at oursociallandscape.com. Thanks for listening. Restless, dizzy, and dumb I know where you're coming from I know you're shy, don't need a while Just come here Your lips got the best of me I won't set you free It's time to get satisfied Get ready for the crying I know you're shy Don't need a while Just come here Just come here You'll be straddling the ditches I'll be holding on to my wishes 